Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In this latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event in our 2019 autumn literature season for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Good evening, and welcome to Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall. I am Debo Amon, literature programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Will Self, A Life in Writing. In Self's memoir, Will, we are, taken on, we are taken on a funny, intense, and anarchic journey into the mind of one of Britain's most daring and original writers. A funny, frenzied, and honest memoir about his drug addiction in the 1980s and his attempts to grapple with adult life as he left university for the professional world. Chairing tonight's event is, is Alex Bimez, editor-in-chief of Esquire, formerly features editor at British GQ and a contributing editor to British Vogue. Bill Mez is a previous winner of the PPA Writer of the Year Award and the MJA Interviewer of the Year Award. Bill Mez also edited Uncle Dysfunctional, a collection of AA Girls columns, which was published in the UK and US by Canongate. Now, please join me in welcoming Will Self and Alex Bill Mez. Um, I don't mean to start this uh, conversation by saying something uh, stupid right at the beginning, but this is a book about drugs, Will. It's a book about a drug addict, and it's also a book about a drug addict who clearly grew up steeped in the literature of drugs. And I was tickled to read at one point uh, that, or the character Will, I don't know if it's you as well, received a copy of The Naked Lunch as the uh, uh, English prize for the lo- in the lower sixth. Yeah, at Christ College, Finchley, a really good grammar school. Yeah, I did get, I mean, that was my request. Actually, the reference in the first section that I kind of like, where he says, um, Dicanol and Ritalin in pill form, this is kind of guys that rob chemists' lock cabinets, and they'd always say, Dicanol and Ritalin in pill form, wet and dry amps of diamorphine, i.e. heroin, tunol capsules, tunol, very big in the mid-70s, just as much mixed up in the kind of punk drug culture, heavy barbiturate as, as amphetamine. Mogadans and other benzos, tenuate dospan spaniels, another weird artificial amphetamine. I don't think that's about anymore. This is like retro drugs. You, know, you, sometimes, <laughs> you sometimes get that. I remember they had an episode of Heartbeat in which they were like dealing black bombers. I was sort of saying to the kids, that's retro drugs, right? And they're because it's all about, usually about retro cars. You know, they're all driving nice old Jaguars and dealing their retro drugs. And then it says, uppers, downers, twisters, and screamers, which I think is a line from Tulane Blacktop, okay. Monty Hellman film. And Warren Oates plays a character called GTO, who's a sort of insane, illegal race driver in the States, and he's got a kind of trunk full of drugs. And, and you know, to say sort of steeped in drug culture, well, I mean, it wasn't just literary. Uh, the, the culture of, of the late 60s and 1970s, when I grew up, and, and probably quite a few people here grew up as well, was kind of steeped in a wider drug culture, a wider kind of love affair 
with the abandonment that drugs represented. Because, of course, very few people actually had direct experience of it. It had even more of a frisson. The character in the book, it seems uh, uh, that, to, to a certain extent, the, he turns on to drugs because he's read about them in books. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the other sort of weird thing about the culture at that time, or the idea, what is a culture? It's a kind of vector that carries a set of practices, maybe artifacts, rituals, values, <laughs> through time. And, you know, the, the, the Will character says in the opening of the book, he's in some grotty squat in South London, uh, scoring some drugs. It's 1986. And he sees lying in a sag bag a copy of this book written by Alistair Crowley, a.k.a. The Great Beast 666, this kind of weird kind of, you know, literary kind of hierophantic figure from the early 20th century. And he's very conscious of the fact, not just that he has been kind of reading at drugs about this kind of, you know, drugs as representing some sort of avant-garde culture, but lots of other people around him have as well. And you would be in these squats in the 70s with junkies using drugs who had no real interest in a kind of wider literary culture, but they would talk about William Burroughs or Crowley and they'd kind of know about them. They'd say, they'd know. I remember people saying, because Burroughs had been living in London up until the late 70s, and I used to use drugs with people who'd used with Burroughs and Alex, Alex Trockey, the Scots junkie writer who'd been living in Observatory Street in, uh, in Kensington at that time. So it was around in, in the milieu, this sense of a, uh, a, a culture in the full sense of the word, a set of practices that was being conveyed from generation of, to generation of drug users. There's a, there's a line later in the book which says that his, uh, the only peers pressuring him, Will, um, are literary ones. Mm. Um, and I'm curious as to uh, uh, whether or not you felt that they did that influence, was, it, was, it, was that a direct influence on you, on your decision to, uh, to investigate drugs? It just seemed obvious to me. It seemed obviously uh, a, a, a career path. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and you know, I sort of think, I'm sort of, I mean, I, I'm used to ad hominem reviewing and I'm used to, to, to reviews playing the, the man, not the ball. I've had it all my career. It's sort of, my first book, which I published in 91, was, you know, Cocteau said, uh, Cocteau's line is, it was received with a terrifying baptism of caresses. I don't think I had a single negative review. My second book, Cock and Bull, published in 1992, was received these savage reviews, said I, said I was a misogynist, I was an anti-Semite, I was, you know, that's what, I've always been kind of used to that to some extent, but I've been very surprised by how the memoir gives people kind of carte blanche to do that, to kind of play the man, not the ball, and to take, you know, I specifically tried to construct the memoir in such a way as to make it clear that it's not really about me. And, you know, I, 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 and right at the heart of, of, the, of the, the conceit of writing the book is a kind of profound resistance to writing memoir as if it, it contains a moral arc and a moral story of any kind. And I think, you know, I'm 58, but 
I mean, people have written memoirs younger, and, and 58 is in some senses getting younger. But, you know, I'm old enough to really know that the guy who I was just, just you know, writing from within is not me. I mean, it's just quite clearly not me. And I wonder when people write memoir and say, I did this and I did that and I did that and now I think this about it and now I... And it seems to me that they're assuming that they have a perspective on their entire life. Because you can't comment on what you were like at 10, 20, 30, in any depth or with any authority, uh, unless it's all over in some important sense. You're standing outside of your life and you can comment on it in that way. So, you know, to, to write a memoir is to, is to write a biography of the living. And unless you're a sort of ghoul waiting for your own subject to, to die so that you can profit from it in some way, it's, it's really not going to work. And the, and the other problem, I think, that, that is hugely associated with, with memoir is, is kind of wanting to look good, uh, you know. And, and I think wanting to look good is one of the real besetting problems of our contemporary culture, which is very visually based. So, you know, looking good is, is the operative word. And I think it comes in with, with, with memoir, you know, Nietzsche says in the genealogy of morals, you know, uh, your memory says, you did that. Your pride says, I cannot have done that. And then pride and memory compete, and inevitably your pride wins. Uh, you know, and, and I think if we're honest with ourselves and, and we really think about the more discreditable things we've done in life and the, the attitudes we've held and the ways we've behaved, and the extent to which we really, really honestly present those to other people or even allow them much headspace in our lives. It's remarkably little and it's very, very difficult to be objective about yourself at all, to be remotely objective about yourself. And, and you know, a lot, as long as I think it, on the page you retain that connection between the writing eye and the eye you're describing, then you're going to sugar the pill. Even if sugaring the pill consists in abasing yourself for the reader. So I'd say, oh, look how dreadful I was. Look how awful I was. Oh, I was disgusting. Oh, I was this most awful person. That's a form of vanity as well. So, you know, I perfectly understand that people would want to know. Given all that, well, given everything <laughs> you just said, um, why, why, why did you write this book and why did you write it now? Well, I sort of, I think, um, I felt I really needed to um, sugar the pill for my publishers who um, have in danger of losing faith with the project. <laughs> to some extent, I don't feel that it's not a, um, I mean, it sounds a bit odd and I've read some of it to you, it sounds very odd to you, but in some ways it's a bit of a jeu d'esprit, the novel, you know, the book. It's not... <laughs> don't intend you to take it too seriously. It's fun. Wow. In some ways it is. It's funny. The other thing I sort of wanted to do was a bit of a Kunstler-Roman, you know, a bit of a kind of explanation of where the fiction comes from. You know, where, where why, you know... 
I remember years ago, I, there used to be a feature in The Independent, some sort of Q&A feature where readers would ask you questions. And I think the first question when I did it was, why the long face, Will? <laughs> and, and, and my reply was, because I have a long head. You know, and it's kind of, and it was a sort of to answer the question, why the long face, Will, in a sense, was to explain where a lot of it, and, and even down to the kind of modernist turn that my fiction's taken in the past 10 years, I wanted to kind of embed those kind of stylistic concerns and those kind of really philosophic concerns in, in my young life as well, so that that was part of it. And, and I did see the memoir as, as a kind of, almost a kind of, you know, kind of resource for people who were a bit puzzled about, about the, the, the fiction. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not being weird when I say that, that uh, you know, the publishers might, might have been losing faith. I think it, it's, you know, I published Umbrella in, in 2011. I think, it, you know, it, it uh, was up for the Booker Prize that year and kind of lost by a short nose to, to Hilary Mantel. And that's all fine. And then, and then published the other two volumes it's been understandably hard to find readers, I think, and to feel that... Why understandably? We're, we're living in, a, in an interesting age for um, culture. There he is saying that there is such a thing as a drug culture, but when, I, when we think about what a culture is, clearly there is, because, you know, older junkies would say to younger junkies, that's how you do this and that's how you do that. And when we go to do this and we don't talk about this, we use that vocabulary. And when you go over there and you can hit on that doctor for a script and you can go, you know, so there is a culture that is particular to those people, just as there's a culture particular to, you know, Han Chinese people. I mean, it's not, I think that weird things are happening with our culture at the moment. And I, and I think that what strikes me and I, is that, a lot of what we're doing at the moment doesn't seem like a culture that is intent on transmitting its values, practices, even artifacts and rituals into the future. It feels like a culture with a great deal of anxiety about the future, about it. There's a problem with the avant-garde. You know, when I first went to, to Seattle in the early 90s, Kurt Cobain had been squatting very recently in the old fish market down by the port. And, you know, the, the, I, I met this guy called Jim Hogshire, who published a magazine called Pills A Go Go, the journal of pills. And, and he had, in his apartment, he had quite a good loft apartment near the old fish market on the front of Seattle. And all over his apartment were bowls of different pills Kind of, oh, those are amphetamines, and those are you know, all these bowls of pills. And he had three clocks on the wall set to the times of different chemical disasters. So he had like Exxon Valdez time, Bhopal time, and Chernobyl time on the wall. And about sometime after midnight, he said, I guess we're high enough now, let's get the guns out. <laughs> and went to the closet and opened it up and it was full of several racks of automatic weapons. I have to say that that's always the thing about America I've never really liked as somebody that's enjoyed 
living on the somewhat seamier side of things is that very quickly in America the guns come out. And that's not comfortable at all for those of us who grew up in the Hampstead Garden suburb. That's the, <laughs> that's, that's the point when you do feel that you've kind of crossed the line. But I, this long story has a point, this digression. When we, we left the, the apartment and went to, to get a coffee at a hip new coffee place called Starbucks. There is no avant-garde anymore. There's just fucking Starbucks. And, you know, that kind of <laughs> heady, that headline in The Onion, the American satirical mag, you know, uh, Starbucks, op new Starbucks opened in restroom of existing Starbucks. <laughs> you know, and that's the contemporary avant-garde. It's a Starbucks opened in the toilet of an existing fucking Starbucks. You know, and a culture without an avant-garde is a culture with no tension no creative tension between what the norm is, what good solid, solid family entertainment is, what people are allowed to say, and what people aren't allowed to say. You know, and there's, uh, you know, so the, in a way the avant-garde ate itself, it destroyed itself, it was bowderized, it was commercialized, and it shot itself in the foot through its own excesses. But nonetheless, it's the, it, one of the many canaries in the coal mine that tell you we're in deep doggy doos. I'm going to bring you back to even cheerier uh, mm. to this book and to the 24-year-old uh, standing on the Clapham Road uh, with 57 pence in his pocket. He, uh, right from the beginning, demonstrates a sort of sneering contempt for bourgeois culture. He's in the mid-1980s, and, uh, and then the book jumps back to 1979. Throughout, it jumps forward and backwards. Um, and throughout, the character of Will, uh, even as a child, even as a, I don't know how old were you three when you ran away when the when, when little Will little Willie runs away from home and the nice lady uh, offers to help him and he uh, thinks yeah I think awful. it's the twenty four year old Will who's adding the fucking grass there there's, yeah. there's a, yeah. there is a, a, at different points there is a sneering contempt for bourgeois culture a display where does that come from well the Hampstead Garden suburb yeah. I mean you don't you don't have to English suburbia is a snake pit. I mean, didn't you grow up? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also have a sneering contempt for it, but... I think... Um, it, it, where does it come from, the sneering contempt? I, I mean, I, I would have to, to blame um, my mother, really. Mm -hmm. My mother found the English... She was American. She was born in, in 1922 in Columbus, Ohio, and, and my grandfather was a kind of... Uh, you know, what you would call a huckster, if not indeed a shyster. You know, he, he was a peripatetic, you know, my mother told me that, he, that they survived in the Depression, a hard scrabble childhood in the Depression, because my grandfather, he, clo he did the closing down sale when the department store in town was about to close. Grandpa Jack would go in, get all the stock together, sell it off. So they were like the vultures of this economic apocalypse. My mother's first uh, husband, a man called Robert Adams, a rather eminent literary critic in the States, wrote a rather brilliant description of my grandfather and, and my mother's family. Well, and, and he was from a kind of wasp family, and he, he was a, 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 a semophile, not an anti-Semite, but nonetheless his description of my, my grandfather is anti-Semitic in all but, but name, you know, the, my grandfather, had, a bit like me, had a big nose, foul-mouthed, wise-cracking, big cheap cigar, dirty <laughs> jokes, you know, kind of 
I so identify. And, and, and a kind of profound cynicism about bourgeois culture, you know, because that kind of comes from that immigrant side of, of not belonging. You know, my mother grew up, my mother wouldn't talk about, you know, I think the thing in the States, you know, what she said was, you know, the difference between America and Britain is that in America they hate you because you're black or because you're a woman or because you're a Jew. But in England, uh, you know, they hate you personally and you only incidentally happen to be black or a woman or a Jew. And I think, yeah, I mean, she was like spot on, wasn't she? And I think she constantly felt that she was on the run from a society where, you know, because remember in... You know, she grew up in a segregated society still for Jews as well as for African-American people. So, you know, uh, and then she came to England where my grandfather, my father's father was an anti-Semite. He'd written anti-Semitic stuff, you know. And, and so, you know, I think that that gave me, a, you know, I'm the child of a Jew and somebody who came from a, a, part, a portion of, of English society that was quite unconsciously anti-Semitic in the, in the late 50s and 1960s. And I'm sorry, you know, other people who are in this audience who are of dual heritage will know what I'm talking about. It does leave you with a profound cynicism about certain societies that present themselves as English middle-class society does and certainly did in the 60s and 70s as being morally recondite by virtue of itself, you know. We're, we're the English middle-class, so, you know, what we say goes. We read Bernard Levin in The Times and, you know, we read Jill Tweedy in The Guardian and, and we know and we go to the festival hall and and fuck you, you know? <laughs> well, because we know so much about you, about your past and about uh, the role drugs played in your past, even before we read this book, we know quite a lot about it, or we think we do. Um, it's always been the case that your books have been read through that prism. They've been reviewed through that, uh, through that idea. Uh, and, and it's thought that uh, the, uh, your style, uh, your, your, uh, your milieu, everything in it is, inf is informed in some way by drugs. Is that fair or unfair? I think we, we are what we eat, to some extent. We can't deny that. It's not so much the drugs. There's two aspects to it. One is, I think it's sort of um, our mutual friend, Martin Amos, wrote to me and said he was reading the memoir and sent me an email. And he said, you know, it's, it's a bit like youth is wasted on the young. He, he, he said, um, extraordinary that... that um, you know, that really only the young can afford a death wish that powerful. Obviously, once you get older, you, you kind of, you have to address that or you're not going to be alive. And, you know, it's sort of, one of the problems for me is, and, and, and I didn't want to write a kind of, I used to be a teenage werewolf, but it's all right now. And I'm very skeptical of that kind of thing. I don't think it's helpful. I don't even think it's particularly compassionate. I don't think it necessarily works either as a piece of catharsis. And, and, and so I didn't want to present that thing that my kind of drug experience, you know, the road to excess led to the Palace of Enlightenment in some way, because I, I don't think that's necessarily true. And for all of the reasons I said about writing memoir in general. Um, 
But I do think that, that you know, some of the ways in which drugs have made me are unexpected. If you face a lot of life-threatening situations, and really, you know, that description at the end of the reading where the young man is, is, is injecting cocaine and, and has the, the, the syringe in his vein, so he's walking around with the cocaine solution in the barrel of the hypodermic, and he knows if he depresses the thing that he will die. And it's knowing that. And that kind of raw, confrontative business, it, it can't help but, but mark you. In some ways, you know, if you get through it and you get past it, you're, you're you know, it's a, it, you know, obviously you may say this is incredible bathos, but, you know, the, the defining moment of, of Dostoevsky's life, of course, was, you know, being sentenced to death, uh, for his, you know, peripheral involvement in a in a in a reading, you know, a liberal reading circle. His his uh, um, brother, of course, had been in the Decembrist plot against the Tsar, and they were all taken up to be shot, and they were tied to the posts, and and then the reprieve was granted. The very Russian, that isn't it? They're such a hoot, those Russians, because <laughs> that was like their standard gig. The Tsar loved to do that, to give the, the, the because it was a sort of psycho game with the victims, because of course then they'd be hopelessly in love with the Tsar, and kind of, of course Dostoevsky did exhibit that extraordinary conflict around authoritarian uh, ideas. But you know, it's a bit like that. You know, I, I, by the time I, I, I sort of, I mean, I in fact went back very unfortunately to active addiction in my 30s and didn't finally get clean of hard drugs until my late 30s, which is not clever at all. So the, don't worry, there won't be a second volume. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, in a way the worst had already happened. You know, it had already happened. And, and if there's a, a certain levity in the book, it's that unavoidably it's written by somebody who is alive yeah. and is 58. In terms of the kind of raw fact, you know, what do drugs do to you, man? You know, what about Terence McKenna taking DMT and talking to other dimensions and the whole Burroughs thing of kind of junk is not a kick, it's a way of life and are drugs of addiction different to drugs of non-addiction and, you know, and what about the hallucinogens as a big new interest? I reviewed that book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, and there, you know, that guy, David Nutt, crazy name, crazy guy, has been sort of talking again about using hallucinogens for depression because the SSRIs aren't working anymore. And, you know, in other words, just at a phenomenological level, does intoxication affect you creatively? I still feel the same about this. I've been asked about this question throughout my career. And I have to say, when all said and done, I feel the same way about it, which is, you know, taking acid. Ballard, my great friend and mentor, you know, he, he took LSD once. So that was more than enough. <laughs> that was more than enough. He wrote about nine books off the back of that one trip. Yeah? More than enough. You know, what the other... I've probably taken LSD about 100 times, and what the other 99 times added <laughs> is debatable. Yeah? So, so I, I think I feel the same way about it. You know, 
I think certain kinds of drugs in certain kinds of contexts can be absolutely fascinating and be quite stimulating and interesting. So can spinning round and round until you feel really dizzy and falling over, you know. So can um, talking to random strangers. So can, you know, breathing very fast, you know. It, it, I think what's more interesting to me is, is in a way what cultures make of drugs mm -hmm. and, and how, you know, what it is. And I, and I think that on the whole, it's not gone well. Yeah, you, you write in the book about the, the, again and again, the round and round of, of the drug addict's experience, the, the sort of high, the addiction, and then the withdrawal. And you also say in this book that it's boring. But it's not boring because you, you've written so well about it. And you, you've written about it, others have written about it. People who've never experienced it find it fascinating. Why? Okay, that's, there's several questions Sorry. there at once. I think the wine. perennial thing is, yes, the wine that is bedeviled. I think there's drug pornography. I've always said that. I think there's a pornographic element. And people who would never dream of doing hard drugs or doing them in a kind of weird, hard way uh, do get a weird little kick out of it, just as they enjoy looking at um, videos on the internet of several people having sex with a donkey. <laughs> you know, I mean, they would never do it. They know the donkey didn't consent. <laughs> but nonetheless, late at night, when the word donkey and the word coitus pop into their minds simultaneously. I'm not sure many people just, enter coitus, coitus into, the, uh, well, into their search engines. It, but. You get very different things if you put donkey coitus really? in. <laughs> <laughs> you get a whole swathe. <laughs> of medicalized donkey pornography. Good to which, know. <laughs> why is that good to know? But that's the thing about the web, isn't it? You know it's out there, right? And the other thing is, um, it was kind of interesting as a phenomenon, as a sociological phenomenon, and if you're kind of metacritical about it, you know, and I, I've, I've spoken to my peers, you know, I'm not alone in this, we were a very drug-addicted generation, and they have the same feeling about it. I'm not alone in this. That, you know, we were the first generation who read William Burroughs' Junkie and then became junkies. Yes. And it wasn't because, you know, we'd read William Burroughs' Junkie that we became junkies, but it happened to be that way round. So it inevitably made us a more self-referential and kind of culturally self-conscious generation in that way. That was the whole impact of the of the 60s experience. and So I think all of that is interesting. I think the way in which drugs, because they're illegal, uh, they thrust you into criminal subcultures. And unfortunately, yeah, they are interesting in the way any avant-garde are interesting. I, you know, I sort of, uh, they're interesting in a kind of Crowley-esque way, in a do-what-thou-wilt-is-the-whole-of-the-law way, because they represent a kind of pure existential freedom in that sense. So I think that that's interesting. And drugs, of course, are interesting, just like anybody who tells, you know, where would your life be, frankly, for cold swathes of it if you couldn't tell stories about the silly things people do when they're pissed? Yeah. I mean, it would actually, you know, kind of anecdotage and conversation generally among the human species, certainly the human species, say, under 40, would just die altogether. <laughs> Nobody would have anything to say to each other. So at that level, there's just a certain kind of slapstick humor that's always associated with intoxication. Yeah. 
you put that together with somebody who wants to write and really wants to write something that's interesting and readable, then unavoidably it comes up as a bit interesting. And then I think with the memoir, what you throw in is, is geographicals as well, which we haven't talked about, which is this thing of kind of going to a foreign country and going really as far away as you can to get off the drugs means that you inevitably end up in some kind of weird, far-flung places. Usually, with a lot of other people who've chipped up there because they're trying to give and, up and, drugs and, as well. And Will, you, cho you chose to, or the, in the book, you choose to uh, go to uh, dry out in a country where you, the ready, avail ready availability of heroin couldn't have been more. Yes, uh, I ended up on one of my geographicals in Kashmir at that time, <laughs> still open to, to travellers, where I think heroin was, was $2 US a gram at the time. I was quite cheap. You, yeah, you, that was not a very successful geographical. You, you do have a lot of fun in the book uh, with all of that, as you just said. But there's also, uh, particularly at the end, it, there's a very moving uh, passage, uh, which, uh, which is sobering, I suppose, uh, uh, passage, uh, where you describe a young man who was the, your friend uh, who died because... That's Probably drugs were certainly implicated, and he'd been the most charismatic of our group at university. He was a bit older, came from quite he way more bohemian background than me, and through him I kind of met a lot of kind of old bohemia in London at the same time. And, and he died um, in 1985 at the age of 26 or 27. I'm actually starting to tear up a bit now talking about it because... Uh, I do find it very moving, and I thought about it as I was getting towards the end of the memoir because it coincided with the period that he died. And I thought, I've thought about him every week. And, of course, you know, who am I to him? He's so alive, this young man. He's so alive in, and has been alive in his 26-ness in me. And in a way, he feels more vivid to me than, than I do, actually. And, and it's something about that's the kind of alchemy that, as a writer, I'm mm. trying to produce, that kind of strange, uncanny, haunted sense that hopefully when you put a book down, your own life feels a little bit more flat and unreal compared to the vividness of the creations that you've met between the covers. You have the ability embrace. to raise the dead. It's, it's surely the compensation uh, and, and the role that culture has always played for societies is to do that. And what I think worries a lot of us at the moment is that our culture, with its incredibly short attention span and its rampant narcissism, may no longer be fit for that purpose. I didn't intend it to end on that note, but, uh, but we are um, out of time, and it seems like an okay note to end on. I don't know how you feel about that, Will. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a flat note. <laughs> Thank you very much, Will. Thank, Thank you. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the South Bank Centre Books Podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. <laughs>